So would you please stand for the reading of God's word. The scripture reading this morning is Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. It's uh, on page 8 of the Purack Bible and on the screens behind me. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the lane of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. <clears throat> Water, reading glasses, notes. We uh, pray, I think we'll be ready to roll. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that we've heard read from Genesis. Lord, uh, we realize your activity in this world stretching way back, and we believe and understand that your activity in this world began with the creation as you created the world, and it lasts until now. Heavenly Father, open our hearts and minds to just, just how active you are in the world today, and I just pray that you would help us now as we uh, take this time looking into your word and its impact to our lives. In Christ Jesus, amen. So this morning, we continue the series, The Gospel in the Public Square, with The Gospel in Hollywood. Hollywood, the city known as the Dream Factory. Hollywood, with its global reach, has influenced all other cities. Many years ago, 30 of them, in fact, I worked in Hollywood. I was a TD, a technical director for the Disney Channel, at the corner of Sunset Boulevard in Vine. My job was to put programming out over the air. It wasn't long after I moved out there that my Disney Channel colleague, Ken, took me out on the local tour. One evening, we drove to the top of the Hollywood Hills, where you can see the constellation of little lights glowing across the Los Angeles basin. It's an unforgettable sight. Ken told me the saying that there was a twinkling light for each soul that Hollywood had stolen. Well, our aim here this morning is to learn something from Hollywood. Yes, you heard correctly. Learn something from Hollywood. Hollywood has many problems. I could poke fun at it. I could reference the high point of Hollywood's annual calendar, the Academy Awards event, where Hollywood's, Hollywood's own glorify their achievements by handing what appear to be small golden idols to one another. 
But then again, we have the magnificent inspirational film Chariots of Fire, a riveting and beautifully filmed true story that features Eric Liddell with his Christian faith driving the movie's plot. Now, I'd like to tackle right up front a key question. What should a Christian do about Hollywood and entertainment in general? Well, for me, that's an easy answer. Do what I have done. By the complete five-series season set of the hilarious 1960s sitcom, Get Smart. All 125 episodes. Worked out well for me. My daughter, Audrey, when she was eight, still can recall, she'd say, Daddy, this is chaos. We don't shish here. (laughs) Quoting Siegfried, of course, for those of you that know. Uh, But as you heard from Brandon last week, it's not that easy. Uh, it's just not easy to do that. Um, and we need, uh, we need to understand there are many different ideas of how to engage with Hollywood. Brandon's reference was Mayberry. Now it gets smart. Hollywood content can be very dangerous. It can lure a Christian mind to the secular. And we should grapple with the topic. My suggestion would, would be to the, approach the, the topic the same way that the apostles grappled with the question, what should we eat? In Acts chapter 10, where we read of uh, Peter's vision of clean and unclean foods. Following Peter's experience in the what we will do about kosher food working session that we read about in Acts 15, the apostles determined, uh, struggled to determine what to do. And their approach remains helpful for decision-making today as it was then. They did three things. They searched the scriptures, they discussed it with one another, and they prayed about it. That still works. And I would encourage you in the week ahead to, to do that with, uh, with how, we, how we view and consume and, and use entertainment. Uh, we will be posting a few useful links on the Westgate website at the beginning of this next week. But this morning, we're going to work through a movie review together. We'll review, review the movie that, of all movies ever made, has been called the best ever, year after year, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane was crafted by Orson Welles, and crafted is the right word. Welles was an artist. He has been called a genius. Welles had created the radio sensation War of the Worlds with his Mercury Theater troupe which had many believing that the world was being invaded by Martians. And now, at just 25 years old, he turned his efforts to film. In his first film, Wells took the screenplay, he totally reworked it, directed, and even cast himself in the title role of Charles Foster Kane. Now, a few of you would have seen this film. Can you raise your hand? Yes, but most of you, as I knew, have not. So let me walk you through it with some still images of the film. At the film's beginning, we see a castle, which is named Xanadu. There is a no trespassing sign at a gate. It is a dark, lonely place. Then the camera takes us inside. We see a hand clutching a snow globe. Then we see a close-up of the man's lips as he says one word, rosebud. His hand goes lifeless and the globe falls and crashes on the floor. A nurse comes into the room, as you see in the bottom right panel. She walks up to him and pulls a sheet over him. The man has died. 
Then a reporter is assigned to crack the code of Rosebud. The movie becomes the reporter's search for the meaning of that single, cryptic, dying word, Rosebud. This single word drives the film's plot. The reporter looks for clues of the word's identity by researching Kane's life through interviews with several of Kane's former friends and colleagues. Was it, was it the name of a favorite pet or a nickname of a lost love? The story of Charles Foster Kane is a troubled one. Kane's life was corrupted and ultimately self-destructed uh, by a lust to fulfill the dream of success, fame, wealth, power, and immortality. The final days before his death were spent alone and unhappy in Xanadu, which was filled with innumerable possessions to compensate for his life's emptiness. The still images that we have seen are helpful to understand the film, and so also is some dialogue. Charles Kane, you're right. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. You know, Mr. Thatcher, at a rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. Mr. Bernstein, there's a lot of statues in Europe you haven't bought yet. Charles Kane, you can't blame me. You've been making statues for some 2,000 years, and I've only been collecting for five. Emily Kane, really, Charles, people will think, Charles Kane, what I tell them to think. But how about that tiny detail that Kane's would-be biographers believe is the key to everything, the murmured word on his deathbed, rosebud? It is a mystery which they fail to solve, but the viewers do. As the film ends, the camera reveals that Rosebud was the name of the sled from Kane's childhood in Colorado, a time when he was happy. Thought to be junk by Xanadu's staff, the viewers see the sled being burned in the fireplace. Citizen Kane is a story that is a human tragedy. Kane invested his life building an empire in which he ruled. He was a builder ruling what he considered to be his creation. What he created was impressive, but Cain did not live in a God-based reality. As we move into our Bible passage today, we'll read the account of the actions of a group of builders, the original Babel city builders, Babylon. There is an impressive achievement of Cain, and we will see the impressive achievement of Babylon. Both of these building projects end in failure. While the Hollywood movie Citizen Kane is fiction, the Bible account of the Tower of Babel is history. Before we have a a close-up look at the Tower of Babel account, and in keeping with the Hollywood theme, let's pull the lens back to get a wider-angle view of this early part of Genesis. The chapter headings of Genesis were later editions, a better way to look at organizing the book is by an opening account of the creation and fall, followed by the repetition of the phrase, these are the generations of. Genealogies are very important in the Bible, so much so that the Bible contains them in Genesis, Chronicles, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Nehemiah, Ezra, Matthew, Luke, and other books too. 
The genealogies point to the fact that Scripture is rooted in history. The genealogies point to the fact that Scripture is rooted in history. Skeptics and secularists want to place the Scripture in a mythical genre, saying that the Bible stories of the Old Testament are simply mythical accounts tucked inside an outlandish tale. However, these genealogies confirm a different genre, historical narrative. When you read through and grapple with the names and lineages of the genealogies of the Jewish people and of Christ, not only do you come away with a sensation that you are reading through a family tree, you are struck with the fact that these were real people. The genealogies connect the text to the historical context. And here in Genesis chapters 10 to 11, dropped into these genealogies is the account of the Tower of Babel. And in this account, we need to consider three questions. Number one, what are the builders trying to construct? We read in 11.1 that the world had one common language, as we expect due to the people's common descent from Noah. Some of the people moved eastward and settled on the plain of Shinar. They'd been following the command that God had given them. He had given Noah's descendants to increase in number and fill the earth in Genesis 9.1. This is, by the way, the same command he gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. However, we read that they are not spreading out, but instead they're organizing a city with a tower at its center. Genesis 11.4 reads like the minutes of a planning meeting. Let's build a city with a tower. And these meeting notes then give us the answer to our next question. What is their aim? Which is to make a name for let us make a name for ourselves and therefore to avoid spreading out over the over the earth as God had instructed. In an alternative translation, let us make a name for us was their aim. These were the early agnostics. They ignored their creator. No reverence, no room for God. They built God out of their city. As Psalm 10 puts it, God is not in all his thoughts. So now it's time for our third question. How does God respond and why? Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Pause for a minute. Let's consider this occasion. Picture it. It's a ribbon-cutting ceremony occasion. What a magnificent tower. What genius. But the contrast is amusing. They think their tower is so great, and yet God is described as having to come down and have a look at it. Continuing verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The people were exercising a spirit of unity, it seems. Is that so wrong? Is that a bad thing? In itself, it isn't. However, it wasn't unity that was the problem. 
It was unity in disobedience. A unity that was pursued with no room for God and did not take seriously what he wants. Therefore, God does not just inspect their plans. He thwarts them and he disrupts their work. Seeking a name for themselves was the worship of themselves. Language which God had given as a gift to rule to rule and name things was used to defy his word. So God mixed up their language for their own good to keep them from self-destructing. Scattering them slows down the evil. It is merciful. As William Drumbrell summarizes God's response, in a God-directed world, this is an arrogant human assertion to which at the very beginning of its manifestation, there must be an appropriate divine response. In Daniel 4, there is a similar account that illustrates this point of God's intervention for mercy's sake. In this case, to one individual who is full of himself, and that is King Nebuchadnezzar, who was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And even as the words left his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. Well, then we see this intervention of God was merciful. Read on in in 34. At the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. The Babylon city tower builders sought to build a society with a center which was, in fact, to be realized in themselves, a quest for security through city building without a God-based reality. Doesn't this sound contemporary to you? How much of life seems good from our urban centers with their magnificent towers to the great outdoors, urban or pastoral? All these seemingly great things can be experienced as a world without God. Yes, indeed, Genesis 11 is up to date in its account of the human-centered spirit. Well, the tower building continues. Compare the two towers that you see behind me. The artist rendering of the Babel Tower with the original artist rendering of Walt Disney's Epcot, an acronym standing for Experimental Prototype City of Tomorrow. The Epcot vision had a tower at its center, a 30-story hotel. Epcot became an amusement park rather than the city Walt Disney had wanted. Disney's inspiration for Epcot was the Carousel of Progress, an attraction that he developed for the 1964 World's Fair in New York. The Carousel of Progress sketched out Disney's vision for an American technological utopia. In it, guests stayed in their seats 
watching the tireless audio-animatronic actors in the four acts of the show, depicting the evolution of the science and technology in our life through the eyes of the same family. By the way, Asian characters in a movie storyline was an innovation of Citizen Kane in 1941. The 1964 World's Fair theme was Peace Through Understanding, dedicated to man's achievement on a shrinking globe in an expanding universe. Traveler's Insurance summed up the humanist spirit of the fair in their exhibit, which was titled The Triumph of Man. Very direct. The World's Fair expressed a naive and total confidence in human achievement and progress. But how enduring is human progress? While human history over these many years has been a process of tower building, there has likewise been scattering all along as well. Empire after empire. Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Greek, Hittite, Roman. More recently in Europe, Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, French, English. These empires have all come and they've all gone. What about America? Well, we don't know at this point in time. But we know that all man's plans eventually break down. The world empires with all their cool stuff, yes, even the Apple devices, will end up in the dumps. Returning to Hollywood, how did Orson Welles do this achievement at age 25 in his first film ever? How did he nab the honors, the top honors in over a century of films, number one of a quarter million films made in our history? Yes, there was the stunning craft of Welles' film, the use of subjective camera, the first Hollywood sets constructed with ceilings. Why? Because Welles wanted to put the camera lower to shoot upward to make his characters appear more sinister. And we did when he did that, the ca- they shot off the set. So he halted production, they put ceilings, and he continued. So flashbacks, flash-forwards, nonlinear story, all innovations of the film. But the craft of the film cannot account for its enduring acclaim. What is going on? The rosebud factor is going on. Remember the, slain, the sled that reminded Cain of his youth? Orson Welles himself provides the key explanation for the rosebud factor. Rosebud is the illusory flashback effect of memory that will affect all of us, particularly at the very end of our lives. The awful conviction that childhood memories are better, simpler, more real than adult memories. We all have around two or three radioactive rosebud fragments of childhood memory in our minds, which will return on our deathbeds to mock the insubstantial dream of our lives. Well, that's extremely bleak. However, if you think about it, Life outside a God-based reality is extremely bleak. But life does not have to be lived that way. In my college days, I took a class called Introduction to Theater. Dr. Charlie Rogers opened the class with his explanation of why theater, movies, television draw people in so powerfully. His reason? Because we live in the real world, and the real world is boring, he said with conviction. 
Now that saying has stuck with me because I knew that there was something very profound about it. But for a Christian, something profoundly untrue. If all we have is Citizen Kane's rosebud factor, then I would agree with him. Call it boring, call it insubstantial, as the rosebud factor conveys. I don't agree with Dr. Rogers because there is another citizenship possible and needed more than anything in life, citizen Christian. So I propose that we turn Citizen Kane into a trilogy here this morning. It's only one of them. We'll leave here with three, which takes us from Citizen Kane to Citizen Christian. I will loosely base this approach on C.S. Lewis's descriptions of two wrong ways to live a life and a right one that he describes in the book Mere Christianity. The ways are the fool's way, the way of the sensible person, and the way of the Christian, making up three ways. Okay, so Lewis describes the fool's way as people who go through life thinking if they had done things differently, they would have found that mysterious something they were looking for. Citizen Kane, the original, serves up serves the purpose of illustrating the fool's way. It is such an enduring classic due to its approach of the rosebud plot device, which brilliantly exposes the folly of Kane's life. Citizen Kane II, the second of the trilogy, seems at first to be a great alternative. This is Lewis's second way of life, the way of the sensible person, in Cain 2, Cain is resuscitated, but the rosebud flashback on his near deathbed helps him change, much like Ebenezer Scrooge from the visitation of the spirits. He sells off Xanadu. He learns to treat people with kindness. However, uh, and many movie plots are like this. The animated film Cars, where the brash Lightning McQueen changes uh, changes to the good. Groundhog Day, where Bill Murray's character uses the endless daily loop as as an opportunity for self-growth and achievement. However, Cain, even a nice Cain, remains trapped in a very real sense. He is a far better guy to be around, but there's still no God-based reality in his life. So his trust is in humanity and human progress. His trust is in the city of man. And that point of view still fits very well with the Babylon city builders. Citizen Cain, too, ends again with a single word spoken by Cain. We can picture it in Disney-esque terms. Cain goes to the 1964 World's Fair. He comes out of Disney's carousel of progress, very confident of its message. And he says, He says a final word again, and yet, as he had done with Rosebud the time before, and this time, the word is progress. So Citizen Kane 3 completes the series and is the third way of life described um, by Lewis. It picks up where Citizen Kane 2 left off at the World's Fair in New York. But after the carousel of progress, Kane decides to visit another exhibit, Man in the Fifth Dimension, which had been placed there by Billy Graham's vision. The reference to the Fifth Dimension was the spiritual one. Graham explained his vision for the exhibit. We are living in a world of 
continuing crisis and tension. Millions of people of all races are consciously or unconsciously searching for truth and reality. The World's Fair will provide an unparalleled opportunity for the Christian faith to present its message of peace and hope. By the way, as an aside, a young lady named Mary Weller visited the Billy Graham Pavilion in 1964. She was a young lady in search of a God-based reality in her life. She watched the film in that pavilion. Mary Weller, who would later be wooed by a dashing young man we know here at Westgate as George Rideout, was to embrace the reality, the truth of the Christian faith in 1964. She would later become Mary Rideout. I'm sure she had no chance other than that with uh, George's dashingness. So back to the movie, to Charles Foster Kane. In this final episode of the trilogy, does indeed become one of the million people who see Billy Graham's film. It gets the wheels in his head spinning, processing, thinking about a God-based reality. But he resists the opportunity to make a decision to what to do about that reality right away. However, he does make a crucial decision, which is to read the Bible for himself. And he begins by reading Genesis. He begins, as they say in the film business, at the top. He plows through the first ten chapters of the book to get the flow. He gains an understanding of God's creative power, particularly how God made humanity in his own image to be in relationship to him. Then he reads on and understands, sadly, the general rebellion of people. Continuing to read and think, Cain picks up on something unexpected, something extraordinary. After sin entered the world, successive movements of divine grace accompany each episode of the spread of sin in Genesis 3 to 11. The fall, Cain's murder of Abel, and the flood all move beyond the act of punishment which the acts of sin deserve to God's forgiveness. There is the protective support for Adam in 321. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Cain is marked lest he be slain in 415, and Noah and his family are spared. Cain reads on. The Tower of Babel account is followed by the family genealogy of the line of Noah's son Shem, which leads us to Genesis 12, 1-3, the account of God's call to Abram in response to human need. I'll read that for you, Genesis 12, 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Cain sees a link between Genesis 11 and 12. God clearly had in mind a contrast of the Babylon builder's plan of making their own name great with his plan to make Abram's name great. Cain reads on and on. He traces the plan of salvation from God's covenant with Abraham to the covenant God made with David that promised a forever kingdom to Jeremiah's promise of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, 
and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Cain finds in the opening book of the New Testament a genealogy. The family tree connects Abraham with Jesus, whom he realizes brought the new covenant foretold by the prophet Jeremiah. He repents and commits his life to Jesus. He has changed from citizen Cain to citizen Christian. A new life of faith has begun. Cain, like Abraham, as described in Hebrews 11, began looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Five centuries ago, a guy named Martin Luther underwent a glorious conversion through his experience of reading the Bible. Listen to this verse from one of his hymns. Did we in our own strength confide? Do you hear the let us make a name for us? In that first that first one. Can you read the rest with me? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Let's now uh, stand, if you are able, and we will now sing Luther's great hymn.